So I think all of us have probably at one point or another at our lives believed something that we later found out to be untrue, right? So let me give you a couple of examples for me. Uh, I remember when I was a kid asking my parents one day why Jesus, when he could have came to earth and lived in any country or been anywhere, I asked him why he chose to come to America. And the reason I thought Jesus came to America of all places is because we have Bibles that are written in English, so he obviously spoke English, so he obviously came here. So I thought it was pretty cool that he came where, where I lived. Or I remember thinking, like probably all of us do when we first learn about the birds and the bees, that that's really gross. And I even remember thinking, like, God, like, why would you make people do something that they clearly don't want to do to have babies? Like, that's... And uh, so much so that, you know, I have an older brother and a younger brother, and so I'm in the middle. And uh, I remember hearing, you know, how my younger brother wasn't planned, or maybe he was an accident, or I don't know. And so I literally thought that my parents only did the deed twice, and then somehow he came, and I was like, this is even worse. Like, they just show up, right? Or maybe my favorite, I had a friend this week say that when he was a kid, his parents told him that whenever the ice cream truck was playing music, it meant that he was out of ice cream. Which I was like, that's awesome, right? But what happens in each of these scenarios is eventually you learn things that leads you to find out what the truth actually is. And I, and I shared that because this morning we're looking at this question. How can we trust that Christianity is true? Like, how do we actually know that it's, it's viable, that it's believable, or is it something that we just hope beyond all belief, beyond a, you know, just blind faith that maybe Jesus did what he said that he came to do, what we just sang about? Like, how do we know that we can actually believe it, or is it something that we just hope that is actually true? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black, one, uh, black Bibles home. Now, I am really excited about this uh, morning. We've been in 1 Corinthians pretty much the entire year. Uh, this series called Masterclass. And I don't know if you're sad or excited about that, but we are now in the final month of this book. And this passage that we are looking at this morning is one of my favorite uh, in the entirety of scripture, because it deals directly with this question of whether or not we can trust what Jesus came to do actually happened. Now, I've said, if you've been here this year, if you've been going through 1 Corinthians, uh, that this letter was written by a guy named Paul, who, this is our first written, or earliest written account of the resurrection, and he wrote this letter in the 50s AD, meaning he wrote this within 20 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And what's interesting, uh, even, of the, even the most critical bi uh, biblical scholars, those who are not Christians, would also all believe and all accept that Paul actually wrote this letter, and he actually wrote it in the 50s AD, which is massively significant because of what he writes in this text. And so chapter 15, to kind of end Masterclass, the last section in 1 Corinthians begins by saying this in verse 1. He says, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, everything that we've been talking about this, in this letter, everything about our faith hinges on the resurrection, which is what Paul is about to talk about. And he's like, this is what we hold on to, whether or not this actually happened. 
Now, when he says, unless you believed in vain, he could mean one or two things there. Oh, firstly, he could mean that there were people who were at the church kind of more, of a, more for a, the social reasons and actually believing that Jesus died, buried, and was resurrected. And of course, in that case, he would say, you're not really believing, your belief's in vain. Or he could be saying, which seems to more likely be the case given the context of what he's going to say throughout chapter 15, that without the resurrection, all of us are believing in vain. If this did not actually happen, that we believe in vain, then what are we actually doing? Because here's what happens. Verse 3 says, For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. In other words, Jesus fulfills the Scriptures, that everything that has happened has pointed to this Messiah who would come and do for us that the perfect life, uh, died death he did not deserve, and then resurrect on the third day to give all of us grace, hope, and forgiveness, not because we try really hard, but because we believe and trust in him. In other words, what he is saying is that Christianity is not self-help. It is not something that makes us feel good when we're sad, but it is only helpful if it is actually true. Now, it is true uh, that God grieves with us when we are in pain, that he can encourage us in times of sorrow, but it is only possible if what Jesus or what Paul is saying here is true. Because if Jesus did not do what he said that, we, that he claimed to do, then we are wasting our time. What are we doing? In other words, here's what I want us to know as we look at this really important text uh, when it comes to Christianity, and that's this, that everything hinges on the resurrection. Absolutely everything hinges on the resurrection. In other words, if Jesus did not do this, then he is a liar or he's crazy or everybody made everything up and we're wasting our time. Everything hinges on whether or not this event actually happened in history. Now, uh, now, there might be times in your life where you were doing something and everything came down to one moment. So maybe you were struggling in a class and you had to pass, or you had to get a certain grade on the final exam so you could get an acceptable grade in the class, right? Everything came down to whether or not you did good on this exam. Or maybe you were trying out for a sports team or a drama or a court, whatever. Like everything came down to the audition, right? All your practice, all your effort came down to how well you did. And if you do a good job, everything goes well. And if you didn't, then it was all for nothing. Or maybe, maybe try to get, make this as practical as possible. You know, one of my favorite things, college basketball, is starting up soon, right? And so in honor of basketball, let's say, hypothetically speaking, that there are two teams playing each other, right? And one team that year is better. They got better players. They're just more athletic. And the other team is not quite as good, but it could be argued they have a better coach. And so the game is close, and they're playing, and they're going, and the team that was better that year was winning the most of the game. And to up the ante, let's just say that they are arch rivals, right? They hate each other. And so it really matters who wins this game. And so hypothetically speaking, let's say the team that is not quite as good gets the ball with like, I don't know, 13 seconds left, and everything comes down to whether or not they make the last second shot. If they make the shot, they win. If they don't, they lose. Everything comes down to this. And as I'm thinking about it, I think this actually happened a few years ago. Do we have, do we have something to... They got a chance to win it with a three, man. They got a chance to win it. This kid said, I'm going to make an impact in this game. And he has made an impact. Who will take the shot? Will he make a bigger impact? Yes! Yes! Oh! Oh! Unbelievable! Incredible finish here in Chapel Hill. Freshman Austin Rivers 
with a three at the buzzer to win it for two. All right, let's pray. <laughs> what happened? Everything came down to the last second shot. And this, what Paul is saying here is that everything hinges on whether or not Jesus did what we are saying that he did. If he didn't, then it's all for nothing. But if he did, that has massive implications on our lives. In fact, he continues again by saying this in verse four, again, that he was buried, talking about Jesus, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And this is where it gets massively significant. Verse five, he says this, and that he appeared to Cephas, which was Peter, one of the disciples, and then to the 12, which were the remaining disciples. And then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to, uh, then to James, then to all the apostles. What is Paul saying here? He's kind of giving a chronological appearance, uh, the, the chronological order of the people that Jesus appeared to after he resurrected. Now, it's not an exhaustive list. He's not mentioning everybody Jesus appeared to. For example, we know that he appeared to uh, the women outside the tomb first, but he's kind of giving a list of all the people that Jesus appeared to, which will culminate in him, that, that Paul was the last person to experience the risen Jesus. And his point here is, again, it's to give a chain of events that culminates with his own experience with Jesus. But what I find absolutely fascinating about this passage is that it says that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. Now, I always thought that was pretty significant, right? Because, you know, this is within 20 years of Jesus' resurrection. Clearly, Paul is saying that some of these people were still alive. And I always thought, well, that'd be so cool if some of the people reading this letter in Corinth could actually listen and go find the people that, 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 that Paul is referring to. What's interesting is as you study this passage, the reason Paul says that is that it is hugely likely or, or really likely that many of the people at the Corinthian church knew who some of these people were that had actually seen and experienced Jesus. What is he saying there? That you, if you do not believe what I'm saying, go and ask these people, right? Go and ask these people and see what they say. And what do we know what happens historically? That somehow, some way, uh, Christianity, although it was kind of outlawed, although it was persecuted, explodes onto the scene in the Roman Empire. Why? Could it be that when Paul uh, challenged people to go and see this for themselves, that they, some of these people actually said, no, 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 I was there and I experienced it. Now, he says that some of these people have fallen asleep, and it's a theme throughout chapter 15. And again, it's pointing to this future resurrection, that if Jesus rose from the dead, that there's actually hope, and, 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 and there's hope and grace for us. There's something for us to look forward to because of what Christ did. But what he says here is, if you don't believe me, go and ask the people who are still alive and see what they have to say about it. And then he says this in verse 8. He says, last of all, as, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. In other words, again, Paul concludes with Jesus' appearance, appearances with his own, that he was the last apostle, which was an eyewitness of Jesus, uh, to experience Jesus before his ascension. Now, I want to be careful uh, because Paul, what Paul is describing here is kind of graphic, but I want us to understand how the original readers would have understood what he says. When Paul in verse 8 says, as to one born at the wrong time, he's not saying that I wish I was born sooner so that I could have seen Jesus sooner. What he's likely saying there in the Greek, which is really originally written in, it's a, it was a turn of phrase in that culture, where he was likely saying that he's referring to his experience with Jesus as that of a stillborn child. 
In other words, his conversion was a new birth. When he met Jesus, Jesus gave life to where there was not previously life. And it's a metaphor to highlight the grace and mercy of God in Paul's life. And it's also to show us that God does that for us. One scholar puts it this way. Uh, He says this, as an unbeliever and a persecutor of the church, Paul was in a deplorable condition of spiritual death. The image of a stillborn child is an especially powerful image and an argument for resurrection. The next two verses highlight the undeserved grace of God who chooses to give life and new creation to those reckoned as dead. Now, what does Paul say in these next verses? Verse 9, he says this. He says, For I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. In other words, Paul's story, if you're familiar with it, before he became a believer, he was a high-ranking Pharisee, and he would go around and persecute the church. He oversaw the first Christian martyr, Stephen. We see that in the book of Acts. And in fact, he's on the road to a town called Damascus. When Jesus appears to him, he falls off his horse or wherever he was riding. Nobody else can see what's going on, but they can only hear it. He appears to, Jesus appears to Paul and essentially says, why are you persecuting me? And he goes through this massive conversion. He ends up going to a house that Jesus told him to go to, and the people would not even open the door because they thought Paul was there to take them away and potentially kill them. Paul is saying, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. I had people killed, and yet in God's grace, you see my story as an example that if God can save and rescue me, he can save and rescue anyone. That he was dead, he was like a child who could not live, and then God comes and gives grace where it is not deserved. It's why in Ephesians chapter 2, another book in the New Testament that Paul writes, he says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but... God. We were dead. We could not give life to ourselves. We could not try hard enough, but God in his richness and his grace and his mercy does for us what we could not do on our own. Verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. In other words, God raised Paul from the dead. And as he does with any of anybody who trusts in him, regardless of your past, regardless of what you have done, there is grace and forgiveness for all of us. And then he says this in verse 11, whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you believe. In other words, no matter who is teaching the gospel, no matter who is sharing with you, that is not important. What is important is that the gospel is true. And if it is not true, what does he say? That our faith is in vain. In other words, here's why it's important for us to know that everything hinges on the resurrection. Because if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are wasting our time. If Christ did not rise from the dead, we need to be abundantly clear of what we're doing here when we gather and we give and when we love and we serve. Maybe you have a group, you, you wake up early and you spend time reading your Bible. It is all for nothing if Christ did not actually do this. And I don't know about you, but it really stinks when you waste your time. Like, for example, let's say you were building something and you, you, know, you don't follow the instructions because you're a man and who follows instructions. And then you get to the end and you realize you missed something on step three. And so you have to take all of it apart. Not that I have any experience of this, right? And then you're like, I oh, mean, I wasted my time. Or maybe, you know, something didn't go your way. You studied or you, maybe you studied for the wrong exam, right? So all that time was like for nothing. Like it stinks, when you end up realizing that you've wasted your time. I remember when I was a kid, we were coming back from a church camp or something, and we were driving back in, 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 in a van. And I don't know, how many of you either played or remembered the original Pokemon on Game Boy? Okay, some of you. 
Pokemon is like, if you don't know what it is, it's like animals, but not, and you catch them, and you train them, and whatever. The original Pokemon, it was a Game Boy game. There was 150 of them, and so you had to catch them all. That was the phrase, right? Now, the thing about it is that when you played this Pokemon game on Game Boy, you could only save one file. So you couldn't save multiple files. So what happens is you wouldn't let your friends play your game because you don't want them to mess up your, your stuff, right? And so we were driving back, and my older brother had his Game Boy, and he was letting one of his friends play. And because you can only save one file at a time, he let him start from the beginning, but he wasn't going to save it. He just said, play, you know, start from the beginning, but then when you're done, just turn it off so you can kind of play the game. So he's playing, and then we stop at a gas station. And he leaves, the po or he leaves the Game Boy game on in the car, because we all went out, go to the bathroom, all that sort of thing, so that when he gets back in, he can keep playing. So we're in the gas station, and one of our other friends walks up as we're standing there, and he says, hey, I noticed that you left the Game Boy on, so I saved it, and I turned it off. And we were like, oh, man, right? What happened, right? All of, all of my brother's progress, it was for nothing. It was gone because he oversaved it. That's what Paul's saying here, man. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're wasting our time. Like, this is not just for us to feel good. It's not for us to make ourselves feel better about ourselves or to help us when we're sad. That it all comes down to whether or not Jesus actually did what he claimed to do. And so he continues by saying this in verse 12. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And in other words, some who were coming, who were part of the church in Corinth, believed what their culture believed at the time, which is very normal for us to do, right? To, to take in some of the beliefs of our dominant culture, who believed that resurrection wasn't possible, which of course is a pretty normal thing to believe, right? That's why would you believe it? Of course, that didn't happen. So I'll kind of hang out at this church thing. I like you guys, but like, I don't actually believe it actually happened. What's even interesting is even more significant than us today. In that culture, they believed that there was no reason that, that your physical body was bad and that you want to depart from it, that you want to get out of it. You would not want to be, have a physical body, that this earth is bad, your body is bad. And so this idea that Jesus would come back, that he would resurrect and have his physical body made no sense. Or they're like, no one, no, they would not even want to do this. Why would you want to have your body? Your body is bad. We need to get away from it. And so they said, this is not possible. And Paul is saying again that you say there is no resurrection from the dead. But then he continues by saying this in verse 13. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. In other words, Christ's resurrection will not be just unique to him. That Christ's resurrection points to, as we'll see in the ne next week, our own resurrections. And not only did Christ resurrect, he was the first one to resurrect and gives us hope and forgiveness for the future when he returns a second time to reestablish his kingdom. In other words, that there is hope for us because of what Christ did. And in God's kingdom, we don't obviously know all that it's going to look like, but we're not going to be floating around as spirit bubbles. Like we're actually going to have like physical bodies and Christ is the first step to making that happen. In verse 15, he says, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. In other words, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, not only are we lying, but if you want to use maybe uh, modern terms, we are committing perjury against God. 
Uh, we, are, we are saying things about God that are patently untrue. In other words, for Paul again, that following Jesus is not just about being a good person for the sake of being a good person. It's about Christ, that we follow his example because he actually did what he said he was coming to do. And if he didn't, then without the resurrection, we have nothing. We actually believe this actually happened. One of the things that's fascinating to me, that if you look at the, the 12 disciples, or 11 of them in Judas, um, and Paul, how they died. Of course, some of this is more verifiable than not, but this is the tradition, traditional belief of how every single disciple and apostle of Jesus died. It'll be on the screen. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down. I want to make sure I make this clear. They, did, they were not killed simply for being Christians. Right? Like we would, like it happens today in the world, other parts of the world. They were killed for claiming to have actually seen Jesus rise from the dead, which is interesting if they decided to all make it up. Here's how they died Peter, crucified upside down. Andrew was beaten and crucified. Now, Andrew was either uh, beaten and crucified, or, uh, or it could have been where he was actually, he wasn't crucified, but it was, he was hung on a cross for multiple days until he died from his wounds. Uh, Thomas was speared to death. Philip died by crucifixion. Matthew was stabbed to death. Bartholomew was beaten and then beheaded. Uh, James was stoned and beaten. That was Jesus' brother. Uh, Simon died by crucifixion. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Jude was beaten to death. John, the only disciple that did not die, was a tortured, but he survived. He was exiled to this island of Patmos for the rest of his life. He lived a miserable, miserable existence. And then we have Paul, about 10 years after writing this letter, he is beheaded in Rome. Now, now, what's interesting to me uh, is that, th th first of all, they, they didn't just say, oh, this is fun, like, let's do this. Like, all of them died horrible deaths because they claimed something had happened. And what's interesting is that the, the biggest, uh, maybe, I don't know, I believe, I guess you could say, explanation for what happened to Jesus if he did not rise is that the disciples of the early Christians made this up. Because if you actually study this historically, you know, the alternate theories of they went to the wrong tomb, or he had a twin brother that nobody knew about, or, they, or he fainted, he didn't actually die. If you actually study those historically, those are impossible. The only real theories, that only, only, we, only, we only have two options, that he actually did this, which obviously is hard to believe, but the other option is, because you can't explain it any other way, that the disciples made this up um, at the decades and the years, by, by the next hundred years after Jesus died. They kind of made up this myth, attributed it to Jesus, and made Jesus do something he didn't actually do. What's, what's fascinating is one, other, one scholar puts it this way when you talk about this idea that they made it up. He says this, that the alternate possibility to the resurrection is that he, talking about Paul here, and the other apostles were honest but deluded witnesses. That does not occur to Paul at all as an option. In other words, the modern theory that those who believed that they had seen the risen Lord were victims of a hallucina hallucination is wholly absent from his thought as even a possibility. In other words, this idea that we developed over time that Jesus rose from the dead, is it possible because this was written within 20 years of his resurrection by people who could verify that they saw it, that you have to do something with Jesus? And what Paul is telling us to do here is this, that we need to trust in the resurrection of Christ. He's encouraging us to actually trust that this happened because all of it, first and foremost, is built on whether or not this historically actually happened. That we need to trust in the sufficiency of what he did for us, that in Jesus, we have nothing to prove and no one to impress, not because of what we have done, 
because of what he has done for us. And what happens if you do not trust in the resurrection of Christ? Like, let's say, you know, you know, people come, they kind of like this idea that Jesus maybe was God, and maybe he actually did resurrect. But if you downplay the resurrection at all, you fall into one of two traps. The first is this. It's legalism. Legalism, I know that the grammar is not correct, but the easiest way to remember it is this, is do good. In other words, what Christ accomplished on the cross was not enough. We needed him to resurrect. We also need to be really good people. And then hopefully between his resurrection and us being good, God will forgive us. But if we downplay that Jesus did everything for us and his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, then we can fall into legalism that you have to do certain things. Otherwise, you're not good enough for God and God will reject you. That's one possibility if we downplay the cross. Here's the second error that we can fall into, and that's liberalism. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about politically, okay? I'm talking about theologically. And theologically, liberalism could be explained like this, that you've done good. In other words, that the cross isn't that necessary, right? And this might be uh, uh, maybe favorable in our culture today because we're all just good people. Like nobody is really that bad, especially if you compare yourself to like the worst people that have ever lived on earth, right? What it says is that the cross isn't necessary because we haven't really done that much to deserve God's uh, wrath or God's punishment. What Paul is saying here is that, no, 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 Jesus' resurrection is significant, it is sufficient, and it is not because we deserved it, it is because he loves us. And so he's encouraging us to, first and foremost, above everything else, trust in the resurrection of Christ. He goes on to say this in verse 16. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Again, I love that he's just like being honest about this. What is he saying? That your faith means nothing if Jesus didn't do what he claimed to have done. Again, this is not about just being a good person. It's about trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And he also says this, if he didn't rise from the dead, uh, those that have, have passed away since then, they're also condemned because there's no hope for them, just like there's no hope for you if Jesus didn't actually do this. In other words, here's why we need to trust in the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, we have no hope. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Like this is all that there is. And there's all it is. And, uh, and this, is, this is difficult for us, right? Uh, on Friday, uh, I went to a funeral. I attended a funeral of a 14-year-old boy who took his own life, right? And that's devastating. And it's difficult. And it's hard. But one of the amazing things through this is that because of Jesus... We know that this is not the end. Even though there is pain, even though there is suffering, we know, even though we don't always know maybe why God allows certain things to happen in the way that he does, we do know that it's not because he doesn't care, because if God didn't care, he wouldn't have come. And this is, this is just the reality of the situation that if Jesus did not do what he claimed to have done, all of us are nothing. We don't mean anything. We're worthless. God does not care about us. And we all have this life and that's all that there is. And so you better live it up because this is all you have. And he concludes by saying this in verse 19 again, that if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, I love this. He says, we should be pitied more than anyone. In other words, that if Christ didn't accomplish his, his purposes, we should be pitied. People should look at us and, and look at them as, why are they like this? Why do they love people and serve people that could not serve them back? Why do they believe it, that they can be forgiven of sins? He's like, that's, that's literally true. 
Like this whole idea that we made it up after the fact is not true. I'm telling you, as I'm writing this, as someone who's seen the risen Jesus before he ascended, I'm telling you that we should be pitied. The people that, that mock us and that, that beat us and that persecute us, they would be right if this isn't true. But if it is, if this is true, you know what this means? This means we have hope. This means that you have worth. This means that you have value. This means that you matter to God. This means that you have significance no matter what you have done or what has happened to you or what you have experienced. That if this is actually true, then every single person in this room matters to God. In other words, really, here's the the main point of what we're talking about in this text this morning. And it's one of our values here at New City Church, and that's this, that Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. This is the gospel. Not that Jesus just came to be a moral example of what it means to be a good person, but that he came to do for us what we could not do on our own. In other words, if Jesus did not resurrect, he's either a liar or he's crazy. And there's no, there's no worth giving, there's no reason to give your life to someone or to something that is a liar or that is crazy. But instead, what is the gospel again that he chose, not because God needed anything from us, but simply in his love toward us, made a way for all of us to receive the grace and forgiveness and mercy and love of God. And it's not because of us, it's because of him. One of the reasons that this is one of my uh, favorite passages in scripture is that in seasons of doubt, which we all experience, uh, seasons of doubt, one of the things that helps me most is the resurrection, that you have to do something with the resurrection. And of course, there could be, people have questions about why does God allow certain things to happen or why does this happen this way? Maybe you have questions about certain things in the scripture and those are all fine and we, we should have questions and we should pursue truth. But first and foremost, it all comes down to this. And you have to do something with the resurrection. In my experience, the number one reason people are, leave the faith or maybe have questions or have not seriously considered Christianity is not because they have questions about Jesus. It's not even because there's pain and suffering in the world, although that's a great question. It's because they haven't done anything with the resurrection. If you actually study and see what are the alternative possibilities, and you see, man, those do not make any sense at all. It's seasons of doubt. The fact that what Paul wrote here, and it is agreed upon by everybody, all scholars, all historians, that he actually wrote this, and he actually said, if I'm making this up, that I'm lying, helps me in seasons of doubt. Listen, the easiest explanation, although it still, it still takes faith to believe, absolutely, the easiest explanation is that Jesus actually did what everybody in the New Testament claimed that he did. There's no other way to explain how Christianity massively exploded onto the scene unless something happens so extraordinary as someone raising themselves from the dead. And the invitation is that God loves you, God cares for you, and it's not about you, it's about him. Because Christ actually did this, there is hope for all of us. And so I just want to say this as I close, and we'll mention this in a few minutes at the end of service. As you know, the last few weeks we've been talking about moving into a new space. And as you can see today, we're maxed out here, right? And the reason why this matters is not for New City to get bigger. It's not for us to say, oh, cool, there's a bigger space that we're looking at. This is the the space is cooler and we can do more things. It's not about that. It's about that Jesus changes everything. We want to play our part in helping as many people as possible meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. And clearly God in his wisdom and his sovereignty has decided to use New City in some way. And he's given us growth. And he's giving us you guys who have come and served and have given. And so as we talk about at the end of service, moving into this new space and what it means for us, I want us to remember 
It all comes down to this, that if Jesus did not do what he said, we were wasting our time. But if he did, we need to do everything that we can to help as many people as possible experience the grace and mercy of the life-changing message of grace that Christ has done for us. Jesus changes everything, not because we're awesome, not because we deserved it, because he is good, and he's invited us into the mission of helping as many people as possible see the grace and the mercy that he has given every single one of us. Let's pray.